Hey y'all, it's Matt. We recorded this episode back in April of 2020 when everyone was quarantining and making bread to post on Instagram. Fast forward to now in June, American cities and cities around the world are joining in, protesting the systematic racism that has long been an issue in our societies. While our energy and focus turned to current events, editing this episode took a seat on the back burner. That said, we have it ready, but it couldn't be released at a worse time. Three white dudes talking about APIs while our friends in other communities are fighting injustices that have long kept them down seems to be a bit tone deaf and we know that, we recognize that, and we commit ourselves to being more involved. There are a lot of conversations we want to have around this topic, both in the API world and outside of it as well. We don't want this episode to take away from the discussions going on around such important and heavy topics, but we do hope this can serve as a way for you to take a break while you travel to and from a protest. If you are going to protest, please stay safe, drink as much water as you can to stay hydrated in the heat, and know that things are changing for the better. To all the Black API developers out there, we see you, we're fighting with you, and we want you to know that we're listening. From all of us at APIs You Won't Hate, Black Lives Matter. All right, welcome to APIs You Won't Hate podcast, episode seven. I'm Matt, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Phil. Phil, how's it going? Hey, what's up? And I think you're still locked down in England. Is that correct? Or have you that moved? is true. I'm still locked down on the farm with a whole pile of dogs. God, that sounds lovely. How is that? It's honestly not bad. I'm sorry to like rub it in. It, it was a bit weird going from like bikepacking through uh, like sleeping in my tent and just being in the middle of nowhere to panic lockdown mode. Um, but we found a really nice spot and got a discount on it. And now I live on a farm. So it, it's right. fine. <laughs> Sounds pretty pretty good, actually. And we're also joined by a very special guest, um, all the way from Montreal, Canada, Mark Andre Giraud. Um, you might know him online as a huge—I'm not going to say his uh, Twitter handle because it's kind of complicated—but he is a huge GraphQL um, enthusiast, evangelist, all around. Um, loves to talk about this topic, so we figured it'd be great to bring him to the Thunderdome. Um, with Phil being across the ocean, we figured there's no violence involved today, but we are going to have a great discussion on what GraphQL is and why you should maybe consider it for your APIs. Mark, how's it going? Hey, how are you guys? I'm pretty good. I'm locked down in Montreal, Canada right now uh, in a condo in a city, so I really wish I was on a farm right now. Yeah, so Sorry. I mean, you're not like completely locked down, Phil. You can like walk around your grounds and everything, right? Yeah, so the farm is uh, 450 acres, so you can you can walk around it a fair bit. We've been like, there's we've been taking the dogs for walks, and it takes like an hour to get around the whole outside. Um, and there's other farms that kind of drain onto it, and with like little stretches of woodland here and there. So yeah, we can we can walk a whole long time without seeing any other humans. Um, and people have been shouting at me on the internet because, like, I'll post these videos, like, I'm cycling around country lanes and, and public footpaths and stuff. And people are like, stay the fuck home. And I'm like, there is literally no one here. Like, I might, I see more washing machines that have been abandoned than I see people when I go outside. So, um, really not a concern. <laughs> oh, that's, that's hilarious. So, Mark, uh, where, where are you doing GraphQL right now? Yeah, so I'm working at GitHub right now. Um, I don't only do GraphQL. Uh, I'm on the API team there. We work on both our REST API and a GraphQL API. Um, before that, I was at Shopify. I also worked on their GraphQL API. And kind of on my own right now, just involved in the GraphQL community in general. So not only, not only at work. So, I mean, when, when you got started, 
uh, program and everything. Um, obviously, I don't think GraphQL was around back then, but like how, like what was, um, what was the thing that kind of initially attracted you to GraphQL to make you kind of dig deeper into it and become kind of more of a subject matter expert on it? Yeah, it's almost kind of random. I, I stumbled up in GraphQL at some point and I wrote a client and I was like, that's, that's pretty cool. And I started actually, um, I think I was playing with Relay, which is Facebook's kind of first GraphQL client that they released. Um, and I started actually contributing back to this project. And I think that that might've been like one of the first projects I like more seriously contributed to. And things kind of like started from that and slowly, I was more and more involved until like today where I spent spent a lot of time on Twitter and the internet arguing and talking about GraphQL. That's funny. Um, I also spend a lot of time arguing on the internet. Uh, not as much these days. Now, <laughs> now I'm mostly a DevRel, so I'm trying to be positive on the internet. But um, yeah, it can be interesting to go out and have like a bunch of conversations with a bunch of different people that all have like super different views on stuff because it can help you understand your thing a little bit better. Um, you know, it's, it's, I've had these conversations about APIs for a long time and hearing people complain about how much they hate a certain thing um, helps me figure out how to improve tooling and documentation around that certain thing. So they start off kind of screaming at me and, I, and these days I end up thanking them for giving me a new insight. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's a fun use of time. Um, That's very true. Uh, it's, it's funny because in the end, when you talk long enough with these people, you realize like we kind of hate all the same things mm. and we all want the good things. Um, so we're not all that different in the different kind of uh, API communities. We just need to like figure out our contexts and how nuanced the particular contexts are usually. Right, right. I mean, one of the things that I got talking to you about first, I think, was, um, was about kind of of uh, linting and automation and kind of style guidey stuff because um, I know that you um, you were built your team was building a kind of a spectral like thing at um, at github and you also built graphql doctor so we've been kind of sharing some ideas on, on that stuff like basically the concept of um, convincing robots to do your bidding <laughs> to kind of check your API descriptions whatever format that happens to be in whether it's uh, GraphQL schema, JSON schema, or OpenAPI. Um, so what what have you been getting robots to do for you? Yeah, so the goal here is we ideally robots do as much as we can have do that do it. So um, a GraphQL doctor, it does basically two things at the moment. Uh, on one end, it's kind of a breaking change detector. So it will let you know if the change you're making to our API description is a breaking one or not which has really helped, um, especially with GraphQL kind of being newer. It's sometimes we have a lot of devs on at GitHub kind of working on GraphQL and not everybody is very well versed in what's a breaking change in GraphQL. And so that's been really helpful. And the other part is more of the linter, really similar to Spectral you've been working on. So kind of respecting our internal style guide uh, as far as the GraphQL schema goes. And the goal of all that um, is to API reviewer, like gatekeepers, is kind of annoying and doesn't scale very well. So ideally, everything that can be automated and done by a robot is. Um, so that's GraphQL Doctor's role. And ideally, uh, we'd have a lot more in there. Right now, it's kind of some basic rules, but I think we can push it really far where you need less and less of a human interaction. 
of course, there's like higher level design stuff that will require human discussions. But yeah, these robots do a, do a great job. Yeah, that's awesome. And we were talking about that uh, a whole bunch on the last episode with um, Arno. The um, the API kind of, uh, he, he wrote a book about API design and stuff like that. And yeah, we were talking about how um, at first, when you first get into kind of API design reviews and API governance or whatever you want to call it, um, you, you can spend a lot of time just kind of like, oh, you shouldn't use camel case. Why? I like camel case. Ah, and then you're just arguing about all this nonsense and it sucks, right? Um, but then, you know, if you start to automate uh, more and more and more of that, then, then you can have fewer people doing more useful reviews because um, you can work on the higher level stuff instead of just mucking around on like, oh, you, sh- you know, that should be capitalized and that shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's something it, like the programming community in general has like caught on to this a long time ago with tools like Rubicop and something. Uh, but yeah. yeah, it seems like the in the API world, it's kind of more recent, with, but it's really great to see. Just made, me, just made me think about something. I mean, one of the biggest problems people have with things like Rubocop is, reminds me of a few conversations I've had recently about linting basically being useless. Like somebody at, at work said that linting was useless. And I was like, dude, we make a linter here. <laughs> but I think they were talking about things like when somebody uh, at the company adds a thousand rules to Rubocop and everyone has to spend the next week battling through a bunch of errors, complaining about where they put their semicolon, right? So stuff like that might not be all that helpful, but a well-programmed linter can can kind of catch a whole bunch of problems, um, especially when you're describing like an API design linter. It can help catch errors in your API design before you build that API and put it in production and have clients relying on it. So that, that seems a little bit more important than, than some of these other things that people hate. Um, so I was just wondering if you have any examples of, of some some rules that you've programmed into one of these robots that you're particularly proud of, maybe? Yeah, for sure. Um, one example of a rule that's been really helpful is we have a rule on certain fields, um, uh, certain arguments, sorry, on some graphical fields where if you don't provide a default value for them, uh, the linter is going to yell at you and say, please actually set a default value here to instead of like letting clients guess what the default behavior when you don't pass that optional argument uh, we always have default value there which without a robot like every time an api reviewer needs to remind uh people of that rule uh probably this person forgets too um so yeah that's been really helpful and you're absolutely right that and the other thing with apis is once they're out there sometimes they're much harder to change than a semicolon in code. Uh, so that makes them so much more important to my eyes where you really want to get things right before they're out there to like hundreds of thousands of clients. So I want to go back for a second um, to what you kind of said at the start, which is we all kind of hate the same things. Um, and I'll, I'll admit, I'm very much in the rest camp. How, like, how would you sell me on GraphQL, how would, how would you, like, how would you really present GraphQL to somebody who is ardently against trying it or trying new things or thinks that like rest is the end all be all of everything? Well, first of all, I wouldn't try, I think, (laughs) but uh, I understand your question. I think, uh, first of all, there are certain things. I think if you, people who really love rest, I think, were kind of a bit angry at first because people wanted to apply GraphQL to everything. And obviously that's not, that's not the answer to everything. But I do think uh, RPC in general and other API styles have a lot of value. Um, so to me, there's 
two things that make GraphQL great. Um, one is inherent to GraphQL where, first of all, you have this, um, the ability for a schema to represent possibilities, um, which clients can consume in many different ways without affecting the server team to provide these new use cases. Uh, so like, for example, uh, creating a new BFF or creating a new uh, compound document endpoint for this particular client. Um, it kind of lets server define a schema where, yeah, supporting like many known clients is useful. Um, the problem is that sometimes this get abused. Like for example, what I just said kind of sounds like GraphQL would be a great fit for a public API, but I do think it also makes it hard because when you don't know who your clients are going to be, you don't exactly know their precise use cases. So sometimes something more generic like REST might actually scale way more to this kind of scale. Um, but when you actually have like a set of known clients, um, a large one maybe, but a known set of clients where you need to support use cases and your clients can tell you their use cases, um, I think that query language and especially the fact there's no, um, there's no select star. So like all, all leaves fields are selected. So you know, like by looking at a query, exactly what a client is interested in, makes things really easy for a uh, server provider. So that's kind of what's inherent to GraphQL. And then the other kind of, it's almost luck to me, but where GraphQL like bundles in a bunch of practices together where, uh, for example, the schema, the great tooling, that kind of like all came together with a great community, which makes it a great choice, not because like GraphQL is inherently good at that because you can have a schema with many other APIs, but like all that bundled in made like a really good ecosystem with good enough like tooling and a schema and everything. So not sure if that makes sense, but yeah. No, that absolutely makes sense. I mean, the the everything kind of being bundled together is one of the the biggest selling points for it. Like uh, I still recommend GraphQL uh, to, to people that just absolutely don't have the time to sit around figuring out which data format to use, which schema format to use, um, which, uh, which, you know, a, a bunch of these different standards, you can plug and play a bunch of them. Um, and if they have no idea what HTOS is, then what's the point in even pretending that you're building a REST API? So sometimes they just say like, if you don't want to have to think about any of this stuff, just go and use GraphQL. Um, but yeah, I, I've been kind of taking the Doing, doing it things the hard way for a little while, which is trying to get all the formats to play together really nicely. Um, and, and that's like going through so many different standards bodies and all this different stuff. Like the, the recent win is getting JSON schema and open API to play together properly, right? That took like a year and a half. And then JSON API, the, um, uh, the actual message format, which has hypermedia stuff, they've now, um, they're now integrating with, with open API and JSON schema to say like, hey, that, you know, we're describing, JSON API describes the shape of the actual data. Um, it, it tells you how you should format the message. But if you'd like to say what is in this message, then you should go and use JSON schema and open API. So yeah, when, when you have one group of people that's just saying, we're going to do everything and we're going to give it a nice website and we're going to document all of it together, it doesn't matter if it's better or worse. For some people, it's just nice to have it all in one place. Whereas the like open open source kind of standards interoperability approach has been like, let's spend two years agreeing to align and all integrate, but we're actually kind of there now. So it's been tricky 
it's been a rocky road, but I feel like we're starting to slowly get towards this this similar sort of situation in the Rust community where it does kind of all work together, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think the everything around open API has been making this easier and easier. Although I'll tell you, I've been like working on open API stuff in Ruby and it's it's not fun so far. <laughs> there's not a there's a yeah. lacking support for some for some of that stuff in certain ecosystem. Uh, the, stu- the stuff uh, Stoplight's been working on is great in uh, TypeScript and JavaScript. So mm-hmm. when you have the chance, that's great. Uh, but certain ecosystem like Ruby, um, GraphQL tooling is, uh, I think, really better than the Open API yeah, or yeah. even JSON schema, which is the older versions are great, uh, but more recent versions are just inexistent in Ruby right now. Right. I, I do find that funny. Like certain languages just seem to... Na- uh, nail support like it, it seems like there's a lot of different factors that go into it but maybe in a certain language there are certain frameworks or certain people or certain projects um that prefer graphql or rest and therefore the tooling is just much better around one than the other um because in in the javascript and typescript communities and php there's a lot of people that that seem to love uh, uh json schema and an open api and have built amazing tooling for it but in Ruby, as you brought up, like the tooling really isn't good. And I know some of the people that work on some of those tools and it's kind of unfortunate that, that it's not that good, but it's, it's one of those awkward situations where it's death by a thousand clones. I've talked about this sort of stuff before on the podcast, but when, when you have like 10 tools that all do the same thing, but they, they don't do it very well. And all of those developers are just, you know, busy and they'd love to make it better, but they don't have any, that much time but they're all still a little bit too proud to like fold into a different project. You know what I mean? <laughs> I feel like GraphQL yep. of, often has like a de facto standard. Like there will be the package in Ruby or whatever, and people will all kind of contribute to that one. And then in, in other, um, in like the rest uh, ecosystem or just the HTTP API ecosystem, you often have a lot of separate siloed efforts where people are working on their own thing and then they kind of get a bit tired or a bit bored or they don't have time to make it look good or they don't have time to make docs so no one knows that it's any good and and you just get a lot of people spinning their wheels but overall there is more effort being put into the rest ecosystem they're just doing it in their own little silos sometimes yeah absolutely it's it's so weird i don't know if it's just like random luck or uh, for example the the golang community around graphql has like more of that clone problem I find is like many ways of doing it and different maintainers. Um, but yeah, I, the other thing I'm wondering is OpenAPI has a bit more of an enterprise vibe to it uh, mm. than GraphQL and the Ruby community generally uh, is not, let's say, aligned with that as much. I wonder if that plays a factor. Um, I don't know really, but it's definitely interesting. Mm. Mm. Well, anyway, that was a slight tangent. Let's get back to our very, very strict script that we've all agreed. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so uh, there's a bunch. So one of the things I've really appreciated about a lot of your articles and, and um, blogs and, and just tweets in general and just your talks is that one of the things that frustrates me about GraphQL uh, fans often is that what you mentioned earlier of just people that want to use it for everything all the time and completely ignore all other contexts. It's just the blind um, zealot kind of approach. Um, but you are, you always write in a much more reasoned and balanced way, right? Um, it's more objective. 
Could you just maybe talk a little bit about why people think GraphQL is versionless and, and what kind of problems that can cause for people, um, but what the actual uh, benefits of, of evolution are? Yep, absolutely. So it all comes from the... So if you go on, I think, graphql.org right now, you'll see um, uh, evolve your API without versions. And there they're talking about basically just using like continuous evolution of the API, which I think the whole, well, not the whole, but some of the API community in general would agree on, like you don't always need hard like URL versioning or global versioning. Uh, but a lot of people take a statement uh, really seriously and think there's just like no need of evolution in general and that they're free of all breaking changes. So yeah, this one tweet I saw this week where someone was surprised the API broke a client when they removed the field and so many comments was like, hey, I thought GraphQL was versionless. Like, why did that break your API? So there's a bit of uh, confusion there. But I do think GraphQL does have a lot of things built in that make it great to adopt kind of an evolution in place approach rather than versioning, uh, like a global versioning. The first part of it is um, the thing I was talking about before. There's, there's no like select star. So if I'm adding... If I'm opting for additive changes um, and backward compatible changes, there's actually, I'm not adding any bloat. That's something like you hear a lot of people complain about uh, of continuous evolution is like the bloat you add with all these additive changes. But with GraphQL, you don't add any of that to existing clients because they're already selecting the subset of fields that we're interested in. And the other thing is just um, there's a deprecated directive on fields and enum values and soon on arguments that's just built in in graphql so there's that in open api uh, but i think in general with http based http based apis deprecations were not as in any spec like right now there's a sunset header there's a deprecation header coming which is great uh, but graphql just makes it clear that you can use the deprecated directive to do that so that's kind of like the the spec where you've got everything bundled in I was talking about. Like, so it guides you towards continuous evolution. But of course, it doesn't mean you can just remove stuff and expect clients to work. So that's interesting because just today you were talking about um, GraphQL and evolution has kind of been like the primary versioning um, guidelines that GraphQL has handled. Um, but is there any kind of like, is there any kind of different versioning approaches out there that um, you've seen maybe in the wild or is versioning or evolution kind of been the default versioning schema that um, GraphQL as a whole has kind of fallen under? Almost everyone's using kind of that evolution approach, um, except recently Shopify announced uh, they were versioning their GraphQL API, um, kind of similar to Stripe uh, with that date, um, date-based versioning, except it's in the URL for them, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you can do some pretty cool stuff uh, with GraphQL and that approach because you can kind of use like visibility filters on your fields where you like present the different version of the graph depending on your, uh, your version or a header you pass. And you can even, I've heard of some people um, making transforms of like if client is sending a deprecated field, you're, you have some kind of middleware to transform this field into what it should be named now. So on the server side, you kind of write this little transform, but you don't need to uh, maintain the old field. So you've got kind of these cool strategies, but almost like 
99% of things I've seen uh, is continuous evolution so far. Nice. I mean, that's cool that everyone's kind of coalesced around one thing, kind of what seems to be early in the whole GraphQL lifecycle versus like the HTTP community. Um, you know, if you just watch Phil's Twitter on any given day, we're going to be battling over how to properly version your um, your APIs. Um, is there any kind of like, like when you're designing a schema that will evolve, is like, is there anything that you really need to consider that um, uh, upfront as you're designing it? Like any kind of hot tips for people that may or may not come back and bite them in the ass like a year down the road? Yeah, for sure. The The worst thing is uh, is naming. Uh, the worst thing I've seen is like you name, you name something super generic, like probably the user is the best example. Almost like all APIs that evolve have more than one version of a user or like concept behind a user. Um, and when you name like user right away and everything's named user, it's really hard to evolve uh, further. So one tip I often give is like being overly specific with everything. Um, it's so like, are we dealing with a um, an Instagram user uh, versus just a regular user? Or is that a Google Plus user, whatever? Um, being super specific really helps you like understand your domain more as you're building. And then like when you have a better idea, you can kind of like use those more generic names when the domain makes more sense. So that's one. The other one, uh, especially for GraphQL, but really everything is not being afraid of representing things as more complex objects instead of scalars. So like instead of uh, saying the price is an integer, well, maybe like even if you just have an integer in mind, like wrap that into an object so you can eventually add like currency you didn't think about, like formats, uh, formatted fields. Um, so these are the two biggest thing in my mind. Nice, I mean, I, th I think those are both really good um, tips going out. Um, why? Don't you think there are many public GraphQL APIs right now? Is it just because GraphQL is so kind of in its infancy and maturing, or um, maybe another reason? I'm not. I'm not exactly sure, um, but I'm curious here. Yeah, there's. I think there's. Uh, there's many reasons. The first one being clearly um, GraphQL was never intended as a public API strategy. Right, it comes out of uh, Facebook's use case first, um, although it has evolved a little bit, but uh, when they released it, even GraphQL was very coupled to uh, the Relay client, which which meant your server had to expose certain types to even work with a Relay client. Uh, so that kind of screams internal to me because it had to work with their internal client. Um, I think it's gotten better since, but I do think it has this history. The other thing is what I was talking about earlier where GraphQL is great when you control the client and when you know your client use cases so you can expose them. But a lot of public APIs, their strategy is more like we'll, we'll expose concepts and we look forward to see what people are going to innovate with or really like tell us what kind of use case you can achieve with that. And GraphQL maybe shines a bit less uh, about like just exposing generic resources that people can use in whatever way they want. And really it shines when you can expose very, very client-specific uh, use cases. And it, it's really good at exposing multiple of those use cases, but you probably don't want to expose just like resources, uh, very like data-focused resources, uh, which I think 
rest does a uh, definitely a better job at so yeah yeah there's a, there's a tricky balance with that as well though i mean one of one of the most common problems that happens in the rest community seems to be people making their apis too data focused and not asking questions about those user stories right like um i had someone asked me the question the other day like uh what do you what do you do when um something might uh succeed in a business um way or fail in a technical way um you know like what happens if a technical process um succeeds but a business one doesn't in your api i'm like wait why are they two different things <laughs> right um so people kind of uh they 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 will make an api that is very very data generic and it's just a data store over the wire and then it won't actually solve the business needs because the business has to make 25 different, you know, the, the, the client has to make a bunch of different requests to try and figure out if something worked or not. They'll say like, you know, trying to make a payment. Well, the payment was recorded in the database, so it, it will we'll consider that a success, but we have to go somewhere else to find out if the payment actually was sent. So that doesn't sound like a very useful payment API. Um, and, and I feel like that's, the, the, the key to making any API, whether you're building a RESTish one or a, a GraphQL one or full-on HTOS, is doing doing a, a big old survey of what your users are actually trying to do, and then making sure your API actually solves that problem instead of like building a very well normalized API that matches your database schema because that's also very well normalized, and then just going there you go, figure it out. And, and having a bunch of users then complain that it doesn't solve their needs. And you're like, all right, well, we'll, we'll try and take care of that in version two. And that's where you end up with global versioning because you have to keep constantly changing everything based on feedback that your API doesn't work because you never planned it very well in the first place. Um, so I've, I've enjoyed listening to a lot of talks about people from the GraphQL community who talk about that like it's a feature of GraphQL. But really, it's just for some reason, people seem to consider design before they actually build their API in GraphQL land. And that maybe has been less true in the REST community until recently. Um, do you notice any difference over there about, uh, like in GraphQL land, um, between code first and design first? Yep, so so this one is a subject I, I love, um, and I know you've been talking a lot about it too. Um, so the there's the GraphQL d design first, uh, SDL first versus code first debate. And then there's the API design first versus code first debate that are a bit different to me. So the GraphQL debate um, is more generally about frameworks and how they allow you to build a GraphQL schema. So certain of them will, you'll basically write the SDL, which is the schema language for GraphQL. And then you'll write some functions that you, need, you then need to map with the schema so that you can actually resolve data at runtime. Um, and then you'll have other frameworks that will let you build that schema in code and have methods like collocated with that schema um, to resolve these fields. And generally, I'm the in the opinion that the code-first approach to building a schema in GraphQL is better because, um, first of all, the, the SDL, the, uh, the schema language in GraphQL is not as complete as, let's say, OpenAPI, right? It doesn't have like, it doesn't have examples or um, it's not as fine-grained as OpenAPI. You don't have validations in there or anything. 
um, and you can't do really complex things. So people will abuse what um, it's called directives on a GraphQL schema to kind of achieve things that should be done in code. Um, so it's kind of like the, the whole YAML versus code debate. Like you might as well use a programming language to do some of this more complex stuff. So that's kind of where the debate is in the GraphQL world. But I think you can actually be design first, but code first to implement that design, if that makes sense. Um, so I don't know if you've, I know you've been very vocal about this. Um, and I think that's something we, we mix up sometimes, like the design first versus spec first. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the, the you can design something before you build it without using an API description format, right? Like that, but but that just generally doesn't happen in in, in the REST uh, community in the HTTP community. Like the there's it's like a, a theoretical argument versus what people actually do. You know, right. I, right. I pointed out like I wrote an article about it fairly recently. Um, kind of beyond after we did the code first, design first one, it was like uh, annotations and DSLs and and um, code frameworks that poop out specs versus um, code frameworks that read in specs and things like that. And yeah, like you could you could do a design first API using um, annotations in code, right? And you could build these empty Java controllers or PHP controllers or whatever you want to build uh, with these empty models. And you could just add in all these annotations um, pretending that there were properties in there. Um, and you could add all of these uh, theoretical doc blocks that would explain what those properties would do if they existed. Um, and yeah, you can you could do a bunch of user surveys to find out what people wanted to do, and then you could use that annotation kind of framework to to build a fake API uh, before it actually exists, and then that still would technically be design first. But yeah, people don't generally bother doing that all that much. So the the way that the design first but actually code first thing probably more usually works is surveys, prototype, um, alpha pilot group, another prototype, you know, you code another prototype um, and then you kind of go back in this, in this cycle of, um, you know, user feedback, write more code, user feedback, write more code. Um, and so if you're in that flow, that really is design first. You're doing it via code as the, as the mechanism for delivering these prototypes. Um, but, but you're still kind of taking all of the philosophical ideas from design first of getting your clients involved really early on and then like using their feedback to drive how the API works instead of just, you know, plopping out a data store that runs over the wire. Yeah, absolutely. I think your, your post said it well. Um, the, the main difference here I find is that the feedback loop is a bit longer if you go code first, because usually you'll have like a, a generation step where you like generate the spec, uh, the description document from code, and then you'll run like contract tests or anything. So I do think there's a, there's value in a SDL or spec first approach uh, in terms of that, of that feedback loop. But then again, it's so context dependent on the organization, like trying to convince uh, hundreds of rails developers to write uh, YAML instead of like active record style classes, for example, sometimes it's hard. So <laughs> <For sure. laughs> it really depends on the, your environment. You were working. One of the first things we started talking about uh, a long time ago now, I think was you were interested in trying to see if hypermedia or Hatios could be squeezed into GraphQL at all, right? Because I'd been talking about how REST is, is often kind of confused with HTTP, um, JSON over HTTP. 
Um, and, and that's not really what it's about. It's about being a state machine where you can combine a whole bunch of data with a bunch of available actions to get that resource to various different states, right? To you have a, a, a invoice that's payable. Um, so you follow the pay action and then you have paid the invoice. Um, and I, I GraphQL kind of out of the box doesn't really, really do that, right? Like it's, it's a bit of a different thing. It's a different use case for it. But, but you were looking into seeing, you're doing an experiment to try and see if you could do that in, in hypermedia. First off, uh, I'm sure there'd be some people wondering why the hell would you do that? <laughs> and secondly, like how did that experiment go? Yeah. So yeah, as you said, it was basically just a thought experiment. I was trying to see if I could, it's that state machine you were talking about. Um, with GraphQL, you have the, you have mutations with our, which are essentially just RPC calls um, and kind of returning that kind of state machine where you, you're saying like, is your card valid to proceed to a checkout? Is your, can you pay for this checkout? Is it paid? Um, is you can't do it in the same way as hypermedia, let's say. So I wanted to include some kind of special, maybe like actions field, uh, kind of like siren style, or um, maybe you could like query, if this scenario happens, you could query this action for a next thing. But the problem here, it kind of quickly came to a stop because um, since GraphQL is so client driven, clients would need to provide what queries they want to run on these actions. So instead of like following a link, well, it'd be more like saying, hey, like, I want to run this query if we're in that state, uh, which is kind of hard to do. Um, so it kind of, I don't know if it's possible, let's say. <laughs> I mean, I'm not as up to date on hypermedia and stuff. So I'm going to pivot right on back to the GraphQL stuff because you've been also talking about um, BFFs, talking about like a lot of people were talking about like one graph to rule them all and it's not really been working out too well. Um, can you kind of dive in for a minute and kind of talk about like what are people actually trying to do with this and where are they going wrong and um, kind of like what what is the potential solution there? Yeah, so when people read about GraphQL and generally when companies adopt GraphQL, they're really interested about that that idea where your whole domain is within one graph um, and even like companies who have like different divisions, like you can query across like really like a huge domain, which I mean, GraphQL does that, which is nice. Uh, it does help like querying what you could compare to like compound documents, um, which is uh, can be really helpful. But I always wonder if there's like, sometimes companies try to go too far and like really expose everything as one graph is really that helpful. Um, so for example, with when you have like different subdomains that don't really need to talk to each other, I, I think there's more value in decoupling that into different APIs than necessarily like putting that under one graph. Um, and I think the, the other reason people are so interested in that is um, so Apollo is one big vendor in the GraphQL space, and they released what I think is called Principled GraphQL. It's a web page with like principle you should follow in GraphQL, and one of them is you should have one graph. Um, and I think generally it's a good, I, I mean, you, you wouldn't expose like small like GraphQL endpoints or else you wouldn't be doing GraphQL. But I do think there's a limit to how like how big one graph you want to get, if that makes sense. And I think it kind of like follows the idea of like BFFs here where 
people often compare GraphQL to BFF, and I did even in some posts. But is um, there's a big difference here where yes, GraphQL allows different clients to query the schema in different ways, but BFFs are more than the, just that. They're also like infrastructurally different things. Uh, maybe you have different middlewares in front of them. So that's something I feel that's a risk with GraphQL where you're like, if you're centralizing everything, you don't exactly have all the benefits of the BFF approach. You only have like the representation benefits of like supporting many clients. That's, that's a funny thing that I've heard come up a lot um, at WeWork and kind of in consulting uh, since is that people kind of confuse GraphQL with a BFF. And what I mean by that is they'll, they'll often describe why, I mean, people literally hire me as a consultant um, to come into their company and, and, and help them decide if they should use GraphQL or REST or something else, right? So like, I feel like these blog posts and, and these kind of ongoing arguments have just turned into a bit of a job. But um, a lot of the time they'll list off a bunch of reasons why they specifically want to use GraphQL. And I'll just be like, you're describing a BFF. This could be written in any paradigm like your your main concerns at the moment sound like you just need a bff like they'll they'll talk about um you know that oh, we have this api that keeps changing and it's very expensive so we want to just you know control things ourselves and just uh talk to this one api that we control like yep that, that's a bff um but another one of the the big drivers that i hear um equally often is people talking about um GraphQL being very standard, uh, right? Like you have this one standard interface to interact with um, when all of the other APIs in, in their ecosystem are all totally different. And when they say that, my, my usual response is, well, why are all of your APIs totally different? And that's when my kind of standardization um, uh, thought process kind of kicks in. It's like, well, it sounds like somebody should have been using a style guide. And there should be, you know, some API governance going on. And if you have 20 to 25 different ways of authenticating different APIs, you could probably use an API gateway system to, to, um, to like, you know, make that more standard itself. So um, sometimes when I hear these, these arguments of, you know, we need to use GraphQL to make this one, um, this one graph to rule them all, or I hear several different client teams suggesting that they should build a BFF so that they can then standardize larger swaths of the ecosystem. Well, that sounds like multiple teams, multiple client teams are trying to standardize an entire API ecosystem that should probably bloody well standardize itself a little bit. Um, what do you think Absolutely. about that? Where does, where, where does the, where does the buck stop? Like how, how many clients should be trying to standardize the backends? Yeah. I mean, you, you said it right. That GraphQL almost seems like a bandaid to this problem for, for some teams they're like, well, we can't standardize, like all our APIs are returning like different different stuff. Uh, so we'll just, we'll have one graph and everything's gonna be standardized. But then if you, if you couldn't standardize that, you'll just have other standard problems, like all your different fields are gonna be named differently. Like at some point you need to invest into standards and linters, as we said, and good like API quality workflows. Um, and that's a problem. If you're writing gRPC, if you're writing GraphQL or REST, um, you you just need to get your shit together, really. Um, so, the the other thing is, while the BFF you have like your clients have their own like little servers, it's like kind of a cultural thing where like they own that part. With GraphQL, well, it's yes and no, right? Because like it's still the representations or the schema is still driven by a GraphQL server. So clients still need to 
add their fields in. And if the field already exists and used by another service, um, then you need a standard. Like do clients add new versions of their fields with their like client as a namespace, for example, there's like possibility of clashes. So I think Graphield doesn't solve that at all. It's maybe like an opportunity to start over for some people, uh, but really you gotta, yeah, you gotta get your shit together no matter what API style you use. <laughs> <laughs> so um, <clears throat> last thing I think we all kind of want to talk about, you, you uh, Phil brought up your book, Production Ready GraphQL. Um, how, how has that been writing? Is this your first book that you've written? Yeah, it's the f first book ever. Uh, it was way more work than I thought, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, like, what, what, is, what is the process to writing a book like that? Was it, did you pitch your idea out there or did someone approach you to, to kind of get going on it? Um, not even. Uh, I, I was writing tons of blog posts and I was like, I might as well write a book. Um, so it took, it took about two years because every time I was writing something, I was so excited to put it out there that I'd just like make a blog post out of it. <laughs> uh, so eventually like I was accumulating content and really I wrote the majority of the book in the last like six months or so when I actually had a release date. Um, so, so yeah, the book started initially I wanted I think it was named like the little book of GraphQL schema design. I wanted it to be like a little booklet on like designing code APIs. And then I scope crept it and I wrote like this entire book on like building GraphQL servers. Uh, so yeah, it takes time. Uh, Phil, you've got a book out there too coming, a second one, I think. Yeah, the, the quite like you, I kind of write a lot of blog posts and then the plan was to kind of pull those all together and turn it into a book. Um, but the, 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 a lot of the blog posts I've been doing recently aren't quite so definitive. Like the first book was written in that exact same way. I like I literally wrote a, a, wrote a, a, a blog post about, you know, pagination and then, Oh great. Now I've got a chapter on pagination sorted. <laughs> but, yeah. um, a lot of the blog, the, a lot of the articles I've done recently are a bit more, uh, a bit more like yeah, code first design first. That's, that makes for a good chapter. But then in, you know, GraphQL versus REST or whatever, those, those sorts of things can make for good um, design chapters. But I wanted to build, I wanted to do um, build APIs you won't hate too. And I've so far written an entire like part of the book just about design stuff. And, and I feel like it might need to become design APIs you won't hate and just really focus on the design part and how and when and, and what formats you use. Um, because, yeah, I think I, I might have set my sights a little bit too high. Um, I mean, you, you set your sites uh, a little bit low and then expanded them, which I thought was quite a nice way of doing it. You were just going to talk about the um, evolvable schemas or like schema design and then went, ah, no, I could do some other parts. I could do some other parts too. Whereas I just went, I could do everything about APIs ever. Oh, wait, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely finding the right, the right scope for a book is, is not easy. But yeah, um, I'm really happy. Uh, finished it. Like I shipped it two weeks ago now. Um, and it's, it's good reception. I'm pretty happy. Yeah, I mean, beyond, beyond tweeting about it, what, how, do you, how do you get folks interested in the book? Where Have you been going on a book tour? Are you sitting in the local bookshop signing them? <laughs> no, <laughs> mainly, uh, mainly it's the, the blog posts I've been writing for like for years now, like kind of uh, accumulated this, uh, this small audience of uh, GraphQL people, uh, haven't done a lot of like heavy marketing really, uh, but it's been doing great. Yeah. 
So where um where where online can people find your book? Is it like is it self published or can they find it on like a, a big box retailer? Yeah, it's entirely self published. So I sell it on my own uh, my own Shopify. Uh, people can get it on book.productionreadygraphql.com. Nice, awesome. And then um, so should people already be expecting like a follow up book in two years as GraphQL matures? Is there any plans down the road or? I'm already like kind of writing new sections <laughs> as we speak. Uh, just, just, there's always like new stuff. And um, I have this uh, Slack community uh, when you buy a kind of like a premium version of the book um, and people have been giving like tons of good feedback and people have good questions. So it's kind of like continuous, like new content to write, which is great. Awesome. Cool. Is there anything else um, you want to give a shout out to? Um, I know your Twitter, uh, you want to throw out your Twitter handle for people? Um, actually in a show notes is perfect because it's really hard to say. <laughs> it's your last name backwards, isn't it? I just, it's my last name backwards. Yep. I just put that together. <laughs> I had not figured that one out before. I am not smart. It was the biggest mistake ever. I had the Google drive or Google doc open and it has Jero and I was like, wait a second. It's X. <laughs> so you can find him on Twitter. Um, you can find them in the APIs you won't hate Slack as well. Although apparently you're not in the GraphQL um, channel, which I think. Yeah, is- I just I just joined that. It's not very popular. I see. I think that's because lots <laughs> of everybody. <laughs> um, while you were discussing that, I just typed out my own surname backwards, and it's no gruts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to make that my handle. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious well yeah so uh, we're all on the APIs you won't hate slack channel which you can all get to on slack.apis you won't hate.com um, swing by we well, there's a bunch of us on there and uh, we talk about all sorts of things uh, GraphQL GRPC whatever you want um, and it's started to become free consulting so my consulting is taking a hit but that's fine because we're all learning um, yeah this has been really fun talking to you Let's let's call it a day. Um, And uh, yeah, I'll see you all on the internet. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, guys. See ya.